I was going to go and get my slippers on, and same. then now I've put same. Yeah, same. Now I've put my headphones on, and I feel like I don't have to take them off again to go and get my slippers because it's going to take me forever to put them back on. What about if you just took them off? Do you think that's going to work? <laughs> no. I mean, it'd work for everyone else in the world, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you, no. Not so much. No. Not so much. Do you know what I've found? They get found? less twisted if you plug them in first because the plug is always on this side. So I plug them in and then the other one just kind of goes into place. I mean, right. it does, well, does for me. But. I was going to say, did you did you see that mine were already plugged in and I'm still going to oh. get them on? <laughs> in that case, never mind. I made myself a smoothie this morning because sometimes I like to try and be healthy. Uh-huh. And my body's been feeling a little bit ropey recently. So mm. I thought, I'll buy some bananas. Mm. I don't like bananas. I'll buy some <laughs> spinach. I don't like spinach. <laughs> Love spinach. So I'll buy some blackberries. Get... <laughs> Do you like blackberries? I like blackberries. No. And I'll put them all together in a smoothie, mm. which is like looks like mud, <laughs> yeah. by the way. <laughs> and it's as thick as mud and it's making me gap. <laughs> oh. Maybe give that a miss. Do you feel better for it or do you feel... I'm probably going to have a cornflake tart afterwards. <laughs> oh, I love cornflake tart. Yeah. Oh, now I want cornflake tart. Sorry. Right, we have a shout out to do. <laughs> whoop, whoop. Shout out. Um, I want to say a massive, massive welcome and a massive thank you to Stephanie. Stephanie. Um, Stephanie. She is our. Um, Does she know all the chords? Stephanie knows, <laughs> knows all, all the chords. <laughs> I'm glad you got that. Yeah, that's she why does. I started singing, Stephanie. Yes, thank you. You are our newest subscriber. And if you've subscribed, you will know that straight away after you subscribe, you will receive an email. And that email um, gives you a link to the to be able to access the Blam episodes. So you choose the platform that you want to listen to in the email. I myself listen to Apple Podcasts. You mm. click on that link and then it basically takes you to that platform and allows you to listen to the episodes that you couldn't previously listen to. And it is as simple as that. If you don't click on the link, you won't be able to listen to the blams. Is that correct? That is very correct. If you don't access that email and click on the link, then the platform that you want to listen on doesn't know that you've subscribed. Mm. So make sure you follow the link. If you have subscribed and you cannot access the Blam episodes or you're incredibly confused by it, get in touch and we will put it straight. Well, Sarah will. Sarah will oh, put I, it straight. <laughs> I get I get confused. Yep. We've had a little new followers on our Instagram and Facebook pages. So welcome aboard. Welcome. To our crazy ramblings. Ramblings. That is the end of our shout out. Random blam, go. Shit. I was gonna try and get in there first. Uh, I know Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, you do. Yeah, I do. though. We, we went for dinner, out. didn't you? We did. We went out for dinner. and Why did uh, you pick Tardy's meal? I did. I chose <laughs> it for him. I feel like I've already done this shout out, but it's probably just 
because I like to tell everyone. Yeah, but, but I think you edited it out. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, it's probably the most interesting thing about me. So that's why. But I mean, I just love him. He's such a nice guy. And we had dinner for several hours and, you know, slapped his arm a little bit. Oh, stop. Arnie, (laughs) I know I didn't sit across the table from him. I sat right back next to him. (laughs) (laughs) I just love him. And yeah, we had cuddles and kisses afterwards. And yeah, photographer took a couple of snaps of us smooching. No, I just, I love him. I love him. And yeah, that's it. Random lamb done. You're random lamb. Go on. I have recently got an allotment. Have you? Yeah. Did I? No, I don't think so. Yep. Got an allotment. I've I've actually planted some um, onions already and I'm going to go tomorrow and plant some garlic, just some wintry bits and bobs, you know, but next year growing everything. Yeah. The world's your oyster. Uh Uh-huh. Mm. Gonna grow some pumpkins next year. Yeah. It's gonna be great. And I'm super excited. Yeah, I love that. Love an allotment. Yeah, me too. Cool. Random yeah. lambs done. Right. Um, Any, anything else? Any other business? Oh, actually, I do have any other business. Go on. Guess what happened? Something really spooky in our house of horrors again. Oh God, was it to do with the spirit box? No, it wasn't this time. So lately, I said to Claire the other day, I've been getting a lot of, you know, when you get those sort of impulses and you think, I'll go and shut that door, but you don't quite know why. Or like a gut feeling. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, like where you think, I better move that coffee cup because oh. I've just got a feeling that someone's going to knock it off the table or something. No, um, see, mine are, I, I walk past someone's house and go, I wonder if their door's unlocked. Oh, you sound like a burglar. <laughs> I never do <laughs> it, but you know, you just get them in. impulses that you're like, what would happen if I do that? <laughs> I wonder what would happen if I just walked in their house. Yeah. You'd get shot. Yeah. Yeah, so I've been having a lot of these like feelings lately of like, oh, I'll do that. But I've been acting on it. So if I get a feeling to like move that cup or, you know, I'll move something out the way because... Lewis has just walked in with like a football under his arm and I think I bet he's going to kick that and if that gets knocked over it's going to break yeah a bit just of forethought like yeah you said so, before didn't you that you'll you'll think oh I need to take another generator in case that one blows up and then you yeah, do take another generator and exactly. it does blow up uh-huh. exactly I mean not like to the shops or anything like Sarah's <laughs> talking about when I go to work are you um just pack a generator yeah, go to just, Tesco I'll put two generators in the boot yeah, so it's things like that that's been happening lately. And then the other night, we never lock our bedroom door. It's got a lock on it, like with a key, because it's like it's in the old part of the house. So it's got like this big brass key that goes in it. And so it's just me and Claire and Pup, obviously. And when it went up to bed, shut the bedroom door. And for some reason, I just had the urge to lock the bedroom door which, like I said, I've never done. So I just Mm -hmm. thought, do you know what? I've got that urge. I'm just going to lock it. So I locked the bedroom door. And I thought, oh, when Claire gets up in the morning and goes to work, she's going to get the door open. (laughs) (laughs) 
So, yeah, so I did that, went to bed. In the middle of the night, Claire woke up to someone banging on our bedroom door. Oh, stop it. I kid you not. Yeah, banging on our bedroom door. Claire being Claire, just thought I must have imagined it. But yeah. it freaked her out and she went back to sleep. Woke up the next morning and I was like, oh, how did you sleep, darling, like that? And she went, fine. But someone banged on our bedroom door. And I was like, what? <laughs> I, I didn't hear anything. And she said, no, it woke me up. Oh, gosh. And I was like, no way. wonder if I locked the bedroom door because I had the feeling that someone was going to come in. But what, it was so clear. Someone or something. Oh, I wish you wouldn't say that. Well, I don't because we came downstairs and I was like expecting to see everything cleared out and gone. You know, I mean, why a burglar would knock on the door? I was going to say, I don't think a burglar's going to trash your house and just, excuse me, can can I come in? No, but I was, I couldn't understand it because I hadn't heard it. Normally, especially knocking on the door because you think like it could be the kids or something. So I'm normally quite attuned to that kind of thing, but it, it didn't, didn't wake me up. And yeah, we came downstairs and Claire was like, oh, I didn't. I didn't want to like come down in case there'd been someone in the house and but yeah there was like no signs of anything else we looked at we've got obviously like security cameras in the house that we put on to signal if there's like movement in the house when we're all in bed checked all the cameras absolutely nothing do you think you've just got a really polite ghost so normally he free flows through the house and into the bedroom while you're asleep and then all of a sudden you've locked the door and he's like oh he's like oh where uh, am i uh, where excuse, am i gonna sleep excuse me <laughs> where excuse am i sleeping tonight how am i supposed to watch you while you're sleeping <laughs> i can't get in i know really weird Morning. Morning, morning. You okay? I'm good. Are you well? I am well. You are well. I'm very well. I had a uh, lovely weekend in London. Oh, yeah. With my wizard's afternoon tea. That looked cool. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Got to wear a robe. Yeah, very nerdy. Yep. And uh, went to see the um, show written by Darren Brown called Unbelievable. Oh, did you? Yeah. Was it unbelievable? It was all right, yeah. (laughs) Not quite unbelievable. There was a lot of things in there that I was like, I got got to go up on the stage. No. I did. Oh, my goodness. I had to just put my hand on the piano lady. Put your hand on the piano lady? Yeah, she was playing the piano and I had to think of a song. Put your hands on her. And then put my hand on her and then she played the song that I was thinking of. Did she? Fucking did. So anyways, today's story was chosen, well, not the story itself, but the theme of the story. So sometimes I, I don't know what stories to pick. And, you know, when we're writing the stories, I'll just do the stories that I want to do. So mm. it's great to get listener feedback and, you know, what stories do you want to hear and things. So yeah, then we can definitely. we can write about those. So. I said to Josie, what story, what sort of story do you want to hear? And she said she would like to hear a story of honour killings. Ooh. So yeah. I done some research and I found a story 
there are a lot of stories, but I found one that that I'm going to cover today, and it is the Shafia honor killings. Now, I'm going to put a warning out there. This is there's a lot of information in this story that is to do with religion and culture, and I am not educated on religion or culture. Um, I have no opinions on any of the topics and if I get anything wrong then it's pure ignorance and um, in no way meant as an offence to anybody. And I would like to say same. Same. Yeah we don't mean to offend anybody it's just this podcast is what it is it's just us rambling on about certain subjects. Yep. Sorry. So uh, Muhammad Shafia was from a middle-class Afghan family and he was born in the early 1950s. At the age of two, his father suddenly died in a car crash. So he had to leave school at a very early age. So I think he left school in the seventh grade so that he could then be the man of the house and start earning. And Although he was poorly educated, he became an um, entrepreneur, 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 entrepreneur. So he was an entrepreneur. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he worked with his extended family. And while he was doing that, he learned to repair televisions and radio. So he worked with electrical equipment. And um, by the time Muhammad was a teenager, He'd opened a small electronic shop with a loan from his grandfather. And Muhammad, he proved that he was adept at the electronic repairs. And he was soon able to open a larger shop. And it turned out that he had a knack for making deals and making money. He was a very adept businessman. Mm. And his specialties were Panasonic radios and a brand of thermoses called Peacock thermoses and he shipped them over from japan and then sold them in his stores and he was making a lot of money in 1979 it was arranged that 24 year old muhammad would marry 17 year old rona Uh, she was a very attractive pretty girl and she was the daughter of a retired army colonel and it was thought that uh, muhammad's mum arranged the pair because they were going they would be a good match so through Muhammad's mother the pair met briefly just to give consent on the marriage and Muhammad readily agreed and Rona actually said to her father give me away in marriage if he is a good man don't if he is not you'd hope that would be the case for all of them fair enough it would turn out Muhammad Shafia was not a good man. The couple settled down into married life with Rona. She kept a religious diary of of events. And that's why throughout this, there's some quotes that she's written in her diary and things. But they started trying for a baby very early on in their marriage. But sadly, Rona was unable to conceive. For years, herself and Muhammad tried to have children and they actually even travelled to India for fertility treatments. Muhammad believed that the care in India was a lot better than in Afghan. And I say he he had a lot of money, so he paid 
for repeated fertility treatments, but nothing worked. Muhammad began to hear jokes from his business associates and from his acquaintances, his friends and his family, and people would ridicule him for his failure to impregnate impregnate his wife. And he started becoming the butt of people's jokes. And people were saying that maybe there was something wrong with him. And it was at this time that he started turning quite nasty towards Rona. And she wrote in her diary, my husband started picking on me. He wouldn't allow me to go visit my mother. And at home, he would find fault with my cooking and serving meals. And he would find excuses to harass me. Rona's younger sister, Huma, arrived on an overnight visit one evening and she was sitting with Rona when Muhammad came into the room and snapped at his wife and he said you're a land without crops you cannot give me kids and Rona's sister weren't having none of it so she said to Muhammad she said you shouldn't say these kinds of things to my sister and what she said was actually that this this was from God. This wasn't her fault and this wasn't his fault. This was what God had planned. Mm. And Rona also, you know, she didn't want to be spoken to like that. She said to Muhammad, please don't say these things in front of my sister. And Muhammad's reaction was to step forward and start hitting Rona in the face. Horrified, her sister retreated to her room. She got out out of the situation and she went to her room and she didn't confront Muhammad about it. And she never again spent the night at her sister's home. For her, it was a case of th- this was kind of custom. And um, she wasn't to meddle in anybody else's affair. If this is what was going on, then th- th- that wasn't down to her. Yeah. Finally, after 10 years of trying to have a baby, Rona was at her wit's end. And she told Muhammad, go and take another wife what can I do? And so he did. Uh, Sharia law in Afghanistan allows for polygamy. And it actually states that Afghan men can take up to four wives as Islam allows for such. A man must treat all of his wives equally. And polygamy, actually, when I was looking it up, it was quite interesting. So polygamy started because of the war. So there was an influx of widowed women and a widowed wife was not permitted to keep her children unless she remarried. So there wasn't as many men to go around because they'd all died in the war. So therefore... Why didn't they just change that law? It it was deemed that women weren't fit to look after children, that the man, man. they had to have a man in the household (laughs) to look after, um, look after the children. So because obviously there wasn't uh, as many men to go around, it was permitted that a man would have more than one wife. So Muhammad took a second wife and her name was Tuba Yaya. And she was 17 at the time and she was half of Muhammad's age. So he was now 34. Uh, Rona wasn't unhappy about this. I say it was it was custom for men to have more than one wife. It took the pressure off of her of having children. Say, yeah, maybe she was like, Oof. thank goodness. Yeah. She actually planned the wedding for the couple. Um yeah. at the same recep the reception took place at the same place that their wedding had done previously. Mm-hmm. So there was no sort of bitterness or nastiness or anything like that. 
And within weeks of the wedding, Tuba was pregnant with their first child, a little baby girl called Zainab. And it was the baby her new husband had been trying for for 10 years, a baby that he'd wanted so badly. Mm. At home, Rona played the dutiful role of surrogate mother and she helped Tuba take care of little Zainab and she would also do all the chores that a housewife would do. And early on, Rona said that she felt that Tuba was the preferred wife. Yeah. And, you know, she was younger but by quite a lot. She was incredibly fertile yeah <laughs> and she gave Muhammad a child that he that he'd wanted so dearly um but she was also very manipulating and she was also very conniving so she would do whatever she could to kind of worm her way uh, and, and be the head wife Rona wrote in her diary that Tuba had schemed to gradually separate her from their shared spouse and she also wrote that after their second child, Hamid, was born in December 1990, that happiness left her. Mohammed was now only sleeping with Tuba and they used Rona as a live-in maid and nanny and she was deeply unhappy. Until a third child came along, a little girl called Sahar, and she came along in October 1991. And... It was a a rare moment of joy for uh, Rona because Tuba actually, Tuba was obviously the child's mother. She gifted the baby to Rona and she allowed Rona to raise her as her own. So she now kind of felt that she had this purpose instead of just being used as a nanny and a a servant, really. Mm. She had this little baby Sahar to take care of. Around this time in 1992, while Sahar was still a very small baby, life in Afghanistan had become quite dangerous um, for the family. There were now six of them, so the three children and the three adults. The Afghan civil war had crossed over into the capital and hundreds of people were being killed. So Muhammad decided to take his family over to Pakistan, where it was deemed that it would be safer for them. While in Pakistan, a fourth and fifth child was born. Now, their names have been protected by a publication ban, so they're not released at all. We have no idea what the children's names are, but they are imperative in the story. So they will be child A and child B. So in 1996, a sixth child was born, a little girl called Geeti. And after she was born, the family started packing yet again to move from Pakistan, he moved his six children and two wives to Dubai. In Dubai, Muhammad set up a new business, trade in electronics, and it was incredibly successful. The family were very, very wealthy. He could take care of his two wives. He could take care of his six children. So it wasn't an issue when baby number seven came along. Goodness. Now, this was another little girl, and her name is also protected uh, by the publication ban. So she will be child C. So babies or children A and B were born in Pakistan. Child C was born in Dubai. Yep. Got it. So the Shafia family now looks like this. So Muhammad and his two wives, Rona and Tuba. Oldest daughter, Zainab, followed by Hamid, then Sahar, 
then there is child A and B, a little girl called Geeti, and then child C. Okay. The Shafia family operated in a very traditional Afghan manner the with Muhammad as the unquestioned ruler who must be obeyed in all things. But their life in Dubai had given the family and the children a taste of Western culture. Tuba had learned to drive, and that was something that Afghan women absolutely didn't do. Mm. And all of the children were enrolled at a private American school. And they mm. wore uniforms. They learned to speak fluent English and also interacted from children around the world. So their eyes were open to a very, very different way of life something completely different from the traditional strict Afghan life that their father tried to impose on them. Yeah, I mean, we don't even speak fluent English. so <laughs> I try. And we are English. Rona, however, felt incredibly alone living in, in Dubai. And she wrote in her diary that Tuba was doing everything in her power to position herself above Rona as head wife. She was given the luxury of being able to drive. Rona was not. She was allowed to buy as much gold as she wanted. Uh, Rona was not. Uh, so Rona was very often kind of sidelined. Hmm. So she was just being treated as uh, a slave, really. Hmm. At one point, Muhammad had dreamed of moving his family from Dubai to New Zealand. He wanted somewhere that could give him permanent citizenship instead of just living in a place that, that kind of gave him residency, he wanted to settle down somewhere where he would be a, a, a citizen. Uh, so he wanted to travel to New Zealand and apply for the citizenship. But unfortunately, Rona didn't pass the required medical test. So as you can imagine, Rona felt the full brunt of her husband's wrath. And mm. she wrote in her diary, whatever I did, if I sat down, if I got up, if I ate there was blame and censor, censure attached to it. And she said, in short, he had made life a torture for me. So with their plans foiled to get citizenship in New Zealand, the family stayed and lived in Dubai for almost 10 years. So it was now 2007. The children are aged between 11 and 18. And Muhammad decided to move his family to Canada because wow. at that time, the province of Quebec had an immigrant investor scheme and it allowed applicants to buy their way into Canada for $400,000. That's that's pretty much all they had to do. Right. And he he had no trouble affording that. And he, he actually paid most of it in cash. Goodness. The only issue with moving to Canada was that polygamy was illegal. Oh. And Muhammad had two wives. So had he filled out the application as it stood, they would not have been granted resident or, or citizenship in Canada. So when they filled out the visa application, Muhammad listed just one wife. Oh, let me guess which one. Hmm. Tuba. Tuba. He listed Rona as a cousin and a live-in nanny for the children. And their visa was granted. Upon moving to Canada, Muhammad purchased a $2 million strip mall 
and a $900,000 piece of land upon which he had planned to build their dream home. While it was being built, the family of 10 were crammed into a four-bedroom, two-bathroom rental accommodation. Now, they stayed there for two years. Oh. With, with like, that's how long it was taken to build that <clears throat> home. There were no beds in the property. Oh. They slept on brown sleeping mats. Why? That was that was the custom in, in Afghan. Oh. And there was hardly any furniture in the house. And it was almost as if it was like a prison. Sounds lovely. Rona slept in a bedroom with Geeti and Sahar. There was only enough room really for their sleeping mats to be kind of side by side um, in the room. The brothers, Hamid and B, shared another bedroom, as did Zainab and her younger sister, A. The youngest child, C, slept with Tuba and Muhammad in their master bedroom. Most nights, though, it was just Tuba and child C because Muhammad actually spent most of his time away on business in Dubai. During their two-year stay in Canada, Muhammad only spent a total of six months in Canada, the rest of the time he was away on business. Why didn't they just stay in Dubai then? He wanted citizenship. Hmm. That was all. So although Muhammad had moved his daughters to the freest of countries with the most possibilities for them in life, he gave them endless money to eat fast food and endless money to buy expensive clothes and jewellery he still firmly expected them to uphold his twisted sense of honour and live by his strict house rules. Now, this was incredibly difficult for the children, Hmm. having been raised mostly in Dubai at an American school with very Western culture. Hmm. The girls weren't allowed to talk to boys, even at school. That was a surefire way to destroy the family's honour and reputation. He wouldn't allow the girls to wear makeup and he wanted them to always wear the hijab, which was confusing for the girls because he allowed his wife, Tuba, to not wear her hijab. So he would make Rona wear it and the girls, but his wife, so he he allowed her to drive a car and he mm. allowed her to kind of wear all this expensive jewellery and stuff. So it was as though he was kind of picking and choosing which customs suited his lifestyle. Yeah. But Muhammad was very strict and abusive with the girls, both mentally and physically. So they tried to adhere to the unrealistic expectations that were expected of them. While he was away on his business trips, their eldest son, Hamid, he was left to enforce the house rules. While Muhammad was away, Hamid was the man of the house. He was his father's eyes, ears and fists. And he did this with the help of child A and child B, they would act as a spy for him. So they were incredibly loyal to their brother and their father and their Afghanistan, you know, roots and, roots, and yeah. everything that they tried to live by. And Hamid was just as abusive as his father. And he took pleasure in trying to catch the girls breaking the rules, especially the rules concerning boys. 18-year-old Zainab, 16-year-old Sahar and 13-year-old Geeti were normal teenage girls and wanted to act as normal teenage girls did. They were living in Canada. You know, they they went to a mainstream school and they wanted to 
or kind of fit in. They just wanted yeah. to be like everybody else. So they wanted to wear makeup and fashionable clothing. They didn't want to have to cover up and wear the hijab. They wanted to talk to boys and they wanted to have boyfriends. They went to an integrated school. So they couldn't mm. avoid talking to boys. Yeah. Um. So they were forced to hide it and sneak around, which obviously wasn't easy at all. No. Zainab and her younger brother, Hamid, actually uh, attended the same school. And he noticed when a young Pakistani classmate called Amar started giving Zainab attention. In February 2008, Amar sent Zainab a Valentine's Day email And her response to this email actually signifies the level that she had to try and kind of sneak around and hide things. And she wrote to Omar, I'm going to say it how she wrote it, because it's 2008 and she, you know, like cuz instead of the cause and all very, um, all very teenage mannerisms. Yeah. So she put, be aware of my bro. If my bro is around, act like a complete stranger. We'll talk if my bro is not around because I don't want to give him the slightest idea that we are friends and the R is just an R. <laughs> oh. Oh. So, oh. Oh. so that was kind of the level that she had to hide things that nobody was allowed to, yeah. to see them together. So Amar obviously stuck to the ploy, but it didn't last long. Barely a month after that email, while both of her parents were away visiting Dubai, and Hamid was out of the house for the day. Zainab daringly invited her new boyfriend to the house, oh. unaware that Hamid was actually on his way home. Oh no! When Hamid arrived, he found a terrified Amar <coughs> hiding in the garage, and he calmly shook his hand and asked him to leave. This act was not in keeping with her father's idealisms of honour. Right. Zainan never returned to that school and for the next 10 months she was banished to her room she wasn't allowed to leave the house um, if she did leave the house she had to be escorted with a relative she Funny. was not trusted at ten all months. 10 months That's she was under was she? Uh, 18 oh my god She was under strict house arrest because she had brought dishonour on the family. Rona was also living her own version of hell under the tyranny of Tuba and Muhammad. They often beat her and threatened her and they always reminded her of her place in the house. She was the servant. In In April 2008, Rona, who wasn't allowed to use the phone in the house, started using a payphone near her home. So she would go out for a walk and find this payphone and she would often call her family and she would detail the abuse to them. And she sort of kind of told them how trapped she was. Muhammad had all of her ID documents and she couldn't get a divorce because divorce was dishonorable. And also in Canada, she wasn't married. They hadn't declared that she was married to Muhammad. So had she, you know, opted for divorce, the whole family could have faced deportation. Mm. One relative was so concerned about Rona that she put her in touch with another distant family member. And this family member was a um, an Afghan women's rights advocate. And it was a helpline called Women for Women in Afghan. Mm. 
But this act was not in keeping with her husband's idealisms of honour. What happened in the home stayed in the home. Mm. So Rona would call up this um, helpline at least three times a week. She said that her husband would humiliate her and beat her up often. The helpline tried to encourage her to take classes, to learn something. But Rona said that she was not allowed to do that. Muhammad told Rona that if if she ever left, he would kill her. And as miserable as she was in the house, she loved the children. She obviously was there for their births and especially the girls. Um, They had a very tight bond and she was the more caring uh, and motherly towards them. Yeah. Meanwhile, 16-year-old Sahar was also struggling her mother, Tuba, had accused her of kissing a boy. Uh, she even went so far as to storm into the school and corner one of Sahar's teachers. Mm. She was very aggressive. Um, she was very abusive. And she told the teacher that she did not accept her daughter kissing a boy and that it did not fall within the parameters of her values. Mortified, depressed mm. and suicidal, Sahar decided that she did not want to live this life anymore. So she tried to commit suicide. When Rona and Geeti found out what Sahara had done, they were hysterical um, and they obviously, they rushed to be with her. And Rona later recalled in her diary that Tuba did not even budge from the kitchen and that her words were, she can go to hell, let her kill herself. Oh God, that's awful. And she gave birth to her. Yeah. Where's that motherly love? You wait. (laughs) Sahar didn't die that day, but she wished she had. She was punished for her suicide attempt and for, quote, being a drama queen, as her mother had called her. She instructed the rest of the children to ignore Sahar. They weren't permitted to engage with her at all. And this went on for months. Her younger sister, Geeti, though, refused to obey her mother's instructions. She was she was great, this uh, little Geeti. She was a little yeah. little rebel. The <laughs> constant barrage of abuse from her mother, brother, and father, and the silent treatment of her other siblings was too much for Sahar to handle. And one day at school, she broke down in tears to her vice principal, and she told him all about her home life and the abuse she suffered. This act was not in keeping with her father's idealisms of honour. On hearing the allegations, her teacher followed protocol and phoned Child Protective Services. Sahar was absolutely terrified. And before they could even speak to her properly, they they kind of phoned her to say, you know, this is is what we're going to do. She shut down and she just recanted everything that she said. She denied everything and she just kept saying to them, please don't tell my parents, please don't tell my parents. But they had to follow protocol also, so they phoned home. A meeting was arranged for the family at the school and Tuba arrived first with Zainab, who was still under house arrest at this time for her own wrongdoings. And they both denied all of the allegations. They even denied that Sahara tried to commit suicide. Zainab obviously agreed with whatever Tuba was saying. She didn't want to get in any more trouble. Yeah. She did say, however, to Child Protective Services that Sahar was a little bit sad about having to wear her 
hijab, which was an understatement. Yeah. Um, a little while later, a fuming Muhammad and Hamid arrived at the school next, and the officer described him as being incredibly angry, and he demanded to know the source of the lies. But Child Protective Services said that they can't divulge the um, where the allegations had come from. Yeah. Um, but Muhammad said that he would contact his lawyer in order to get the source. He he was absolutely like a thing possessed. He was fuming. A few months after her 19th birthday, Zainab was finally released from her house arrest. She was allowed to go back to school, although it was a different school from the one that she'd met Amar. She was no longer allowed at that school. They hadn't seen each other the whole 10 months of her isolation, but she'd never forgotten about him. And during a rare moment alone, she emailed her old boyfriend and she said, I miss you bad. I still remember the way you told me you loved me the first time. So by the beginning of 2009, they were desperate to see each other and they began sneaking visits to see each other and would often meet up with Sahar and her new boyfriend, Ricardo, who was a 21-year-old Spanish student, and he was four years her senior. Uh Sahar told Ricardo that her parents didn't know about their relationship, and she said, quotes, the day her parents knew, she would be a dead woman. Terrifying. The only people that knew about the relationship was her older sister, Zainab, and her younger sister, Giti. 13-year-old Geeti was, she was like a different breed. She was completely different from her mother and father and her other siblings. She was purposely rebellious. She (laughs) hadn't lived any of her life in Afghanistan. She had grown up with her privileged private American education in Dubai. She did not care a single bit for her father's conservative views. And she also did not care if he knew it. She wore makeup. She wore revealing clothes. She <laughs> skipped school and she was even caught stealing. This act was not in keeping with her father's idealisms of no. honour. You don't say. Mm-hmm. Geeti was often the brunt of Muhammad's rage and would frequently beat her for her behaviour, oh, oftentimes enlisting the help of her brother, Hamid. They would just, like, team up. Hmm. Zainab could no longer stand to watch the abuse that was being dished out to her siblings on a daily basis, but she had no power at all to change the situation. So while her father was away in Dubai on business, she made the daring move to run away and she left a note for her brother to find that simply read, I would like to live my own life. Upon finding his sister gone and a note left, Hamid called the police to report his sister missing. However, when they realised that she was almost 20 and she'd left the note, the police weren't willing at all to send out a search party. Good. For Muhammad, the news of his daughter's betrayal was too much to handle. And he's later quoted as saying, my adult daughter was out in the world, unsupervised, unrestrained. She could be having sex. And even if she wasn't, People would think that, which is just as bad. Not for her. (laughs) The day Zainab left, April 17th, 2009, news of her running away had reached her other siblings at school. 
The four of them at this school, Sahar, Giti, and child A and B, were so terrified of their father's reaction that instead of going home, they went to a complete stranger's house and asked him to phone the police. An officer was dispatched to the location of the stranger's house and found the children standing on a street corner, too afraid to go home, fearing their father's reaction. The children were escorted home by the officer, but not before each one of them had been questioned about their home life. So child A and child B, although they were afraid of their father, they were very loyal and they kind of played down the level of violence in the house. But Geeti and Sahar told the officers hands down what was happening they told the officers about the beatings that they had suffered at the hands of their father and brother Mm. they told the officers that they also wanted to leave home because they were definitely afraid of their father as he threatened to kill them quite regularly Mm. so once again child social services were called each child was interviewed along with the parents but the children were found not to be in imminent danger and therefore not removed from their abusive household. And the case was eventually closed. So Zainab had actually run away to a women's refuge. And while she was there, Rona had overheard a conversation between Muhammad, Hamid and Tuba that shocked her. And she heard Muhammad telling the other two, I will go to Afghanistan. I will prepare the documents. I will sell my property and I will kill Zainab. And Hamid replied, what about the other one? And Muhammad said, I will kill the other one too. Rona was sure that the other one was her. And she phoned her sister and told her of the conversation. But her sister assured Rona that she was safe and that she said, don't be afraid. This is not Afghanistan. This is not Dubai. This is Canada. Nothing will happen. I feel like she was wrong. (laughs) Really wrong. (laughs) Zainab was eventually convinced to come home by her mother, Tuba, and she told Zainab that if she did indeed love Amar, that she could marry him. But this was just a ploy to get Zainab home. Before the wedding was due to take place, though, Tuba's brother, Javid, phoned Muhammad to ask him a question about the groom. This is all very custom, customary. Mm. Uh, Javid wanted to meet Amar to make sure that he was suitable for his niece, Zainab. And he was shocked, however, when Muhammad instead said he had a request for him. He had a plan to murder Zainab. And during the telephone call, he frequently called his daughter a prostitute and a whore and he outlined his plan to murder Zainab and regain his honour. He asked Javid, who lived in Sweden, to throw a pre-wedding party and told him to invite the family over to Sweden. And there they would plan a picnic near some water and they would throw Zainab in and drown her. Javid was rightly horrified. He swore at Muhammad, told him he would never go along with the plan, He hung up the phone and then he immediately rang his sister, Tuba, to warn her of Muhammad's intentions. Oh, no. Tuba kindly thanked her brother for the warning. And that was that. Despite this, Zainab fully intended to marry Amar. 
Despite warnings from her family about the dishonor it would bring, Zainab fully intended to marry Amar. And the day finally arrived for their marriage, May 18th, 2009. Zainab, her hair and makeup done, her hands hennaed up, walked down the aisle with her new husband. His family, though, also did not agree to the marriage and therefore did not show up at the wedding at all. So none of the groom's family arrived at the wedding. So the whole, the shame of the whole affair was too much for Tuba and she fainted right there at the wedding. And Zainab saw how distressed her mother was and she told her mother, if you do not agree, I will reject this boy. By the next morning, the pair were divorced. The marriage lasted 24 hours. This level of dishonor carried a massive death sentence for Zainab. Oh, oh, yeah, because she'd already got married and then... Yep, and divorced. And divorced. So to try and regain some family honour, a plan was hatched for Zainab to marry a son of one of Tuba's cousins. For this to be agreed, Muhammad would need to give his blessing. So once Muhammad was phoned and informed of the Shamble marriage and then the uh, plan for them to marry Zainab off and then regain some honour. He told Tuba, if he had been at the wedding, he would have killed her then and there. While this was going on, Sahar and Ricardo were still carrying on their secret love. However, it didn't remain secret for very long. Hamid, the brother, found pictures of the couple on Sahar's phone and he printed them off and immediately boarded a flight to Dubai to inform his father of his sister's dishonorable behavior this also carried a death sentence for sahar geeti was also out of control she was incredibly rebellious she hardly ever went to school she was failing all of her classes she wasn't quiet about the abuse that she suffered at home and she certainly would not keep quiet if any of her siblings were to disappear this would also be a death sentence for geeti god there's a lot of death sentences being hurled out Muhammad and Hamid landed back in Canada on June 13th, 2009. Zainab had decided to meet her father and brother at the airport to ask for forgiveness. And by all accounts, including his own, Muhammad kissed Zainab on the head and forgave her for everything. It was around this time that the Google searches started. Their searches were... Mountains on water in Quebec. Rent a boat in Montreal. Uh Facts documentaries on murders. Where to commit a murder. Oh, goodness. On June 22nd, Mohammed purchased a used black Nissan 2004. The next afternoon, the trunk was packed ready for the family summer vacation. Don't do it. Don't do it. As far as the children and Rona knew, they were going on a road trip to Vancouver or Niagara Falls or somewhere else. And that was all they was told. The destination was never clear. So much of the journey will will never really be truly known. Mm. But what is known is that the family were split between two cars. So the new car that was purchased, the 2004 Black Nissan Sentra, and the uh, Lexus, which was a very expensive car. Yeah. 
And they started their journey shortly after 3 p.m. on June 23rd. And they headed straight to Grand Ramu. Ramu. (laughs) What is it called? Grand R-E-M-O-U-S. Because it's French, isn't it? Because it's Canada. Grand Ramu. 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 All right. Yeah, I'd say Ramu. Grand Ramu. Grand Ramu. (laughs) Okay. The two cars headed straight for Grand Ramu, which was a stop along their destination. That wasn't their destination. They just needed to stop because they'd been driving for hours. Okay. When they arrived just before sunset, the sisters met a woman walking some puppies. Sahar, who was never without her phone, snapped a photo of Geeti holding one of the dogs and Shafia and Hamid took a walk. They don't know where they went. So all of this is known from the text messages and photos that are on Sahar's phone as she'd been secretly sending them to Ricardo throughout the trip. And that is, the journey is kind of planned out based on the Sahar's phone records pinging right. backwards and forwards. So that's how they kind of knew the route that was taken. Mm-hmm. So after stopping at Grand Ramu, was that what it was? Grand Ramu. Yeah. Oh. It's French, so it depends how much French accent you want to put into it. Okay. Grand Ramu. Ramu. So after stopping at Grand Ramu, they slept at a motel. They stopped for a waterside barbecue of chicken kebabs and the family got back in the car on 24th of June and headed south toward Ottawa. And they kept driving all the way to Niagara Falls, reaching their motel in the very early hours of the morning of June 25th. While there, the family enjoyed a four-day stay at their destination and they checked out of the hotel, which was called the Days Inn, on June 29th. A surveillance camera in the lobby recorded Hamid paying for the bill for both rooms and they left the Days Inn at 8pm that day on the 29th of of June, which for a 15-hour journey home... Yeah, why would you leave at 8 Eight o'clock at night. I will tell you why later. I don't think I want to know now. With the Lexus in the lead and Hamid at the wheel, and Muhammad driving the Nissan behind, the cars drove back towards their home. But at 1.30am, the cars took a detour and headed for the Kingston Mill Locks, which is on the Riddell Canal, if I've done my research correctly. I if can not, guarantee your research will be... Good. Your pronunciation have, will not be. No, we have some Canadian listeners. So if I've got any of this uh, ask about face, please pull me up on it. So the car stopped at the locks. Muhammad got out of the Nissan and into the Lexus with Hamid. Now in the Lexus is now Muhammad, Hamid and children A, B and C. Okay. And Tuba got out of the Lexus and into the Nissan with Rona, Zainab, Sahar, and Giti. And at 1.30am, they were all in varying stages of sleepiness. So they did not question what was going on at all. That is why the family left at 8pm, to make sure that everybody was sleepy. Sleepy. Five minutes away at the Kingston Eastern Motel, Muhammad and Hamid woke up the manager and asked for two rooms for the night. When they were asked how many guests were staying, 
They couldn't decide. They said six, nine. They settled on six. There were currently 10 of them. They left the passengers of the Lexus, children's A, B and C, at the hotel. And Hamid and Muhammad made their way back to the locks where Tuba and the Nissan were. When Tuba saw the headlights in the distance, she jumped out of the Nissan and ran towards them. The time had come. The exact events that took place next remains a mystery. But somewhere at that secluded lock, the four women, Zainab, Sahar, Rona and Geeti, were held underwater and drowned one by one. Three of them, all but Sahar, had bruises on top of their heads, suggesting that they'd been hit over the head beforehand. And the four women, dead or at least unconscious, were pulled back into the Nissan with the seats reclined. With everybody now in position and the engine of the car running, one of the three opened the driver's side window and got out of the car. They then reached through the open driver's side window, moved the gear of the car into first and assumed that the car, the momentum of the car would roll off the edge of the log and into the canal below. But that didn't happen. The front wheels went over the edge, but nothing else. So the car and the women inside teetered dangerously on the edge of the lock. Their meticulously planned murder was not going to plan. So the three came up with a new plan. They would drive the Lexus into the back of the Nissan and ram it over the edge. The collision caused the Nissan to plunge headfirst into the water below with all four of its passengers. The collision also smashed the front light of the Lexus, leaving shattered glass all over the ground. But before Scarper in the scene, the three, Mohammed, Hamid and Tuba, picked up as much glass as they could and put it in the boot of the Lexus. At 7.55am, Hamid called the police from near their home in Montreal just hours after the Nissan had sunk. He reported a single car fender bender in an empty parking lot near their house and he told the responding cop they'd accidentally smashed the left front end of the Lexus into a yellow utility pole. At 8.30am, he phoned the Kingston Eastern Motel and spoke to his father. He then dialed Sahar's cell, knowing full well that it was submerged in the canal and he called it multiple times knowing that he would never get an answer. Hamid was then behind the wheel of the family's green Pontiac minivan, speeding back towards Kingston. So he'd taken the Lexus to Montreal, Mm. dropped it off, and then came back to Kingston where the rest of the family were. Now reunited with his mother and father, it was now time to start part two of the plan, which was the missing persons report. The trio left the children and walked into the police station just after 12 p.m., having had no sleep for the past 24 hours, and they reported all four members of their family missing. However, police were already on scene at the locks. The park ranger had spotted the car in the water and had called the police, and it didn't take long before the police station, where they'd just been to report the missing family, Mm -hmm. connected 
the connected the dots mm. and they then informed the trio that all four members of their family had been down, found dead an autopsy confirmed that all four women had died of drowning none of them had been found to be wearing a seatbelt and the driver's side window was down specialist lake divers said it was immediately suspicious but what they would normally find is that people were would still be strapped in the car yeah if they'd gone over the edge they sometimes people were tangled in their seat belts trying mm. to get out and sometimes they even found people stuck in the window that had been trying to get out this must but, be your like worst nightmare uh, thinking about this such, doing the research such the worst that. nightmare such my worst nightmare hideous but he said never would he have find people just Sitting in there. in the car yeah. um, not not strapped in or you know just dead in the car it was clear that the women had been drowned before entering the water so police began interviewing the three the story was that they had stopped in kingston early that morning because his wife tuba who had been driving the nissan was feeling dizzy and needed to sleep so mm. she waited with quote the ones who are no longer as muhammad said while he and hamid went searching for a place to sleep then the Nissan rejoined them at the motel. Hamid had left for Montreal, in quotes, to work on the building or something, and everyone else went to bed. Right. And that's when Zainab and Sahar asked for the tr- keys to retrieve some clothes from the trunk. Their story was that Zainab, with no license and no permission, took the car with her sisters and Rona for a deadly spin. But detectives saw through that straight away. Yeah. They asked Muhammad where Tuba had stopped in Kingston while him and Hamid looked for a room. Mm. But Muhammad obviously couldn't tell them where they'd stopped because that would give away the precise location that the car had gone into the canal. And yeah. he wasn't supposed to know that. Now, I couldn't find any audio of the uh, police interviews, but I do have a transcript, so I will read it for you. Okay. And he said, I don't know the place exactly because I'm not familiar here but it was somewhere in the city, not off the highway. From there, we got the hotel. My my wife arrived at the hotel. We stopped the car and there was nothing else. And the detective said, how did your wife know which hotel to go to? And Muhammad replies, you know, the distance was little. So the officer says, what do you think happened, Muhammad? And he said, I just woke up in the morning and didn't see them. That is all. I don't know anything else. And the detective says, you know, the car, your car, the Nissan was found underwater. And Muhammad says, you said that. And the detective says, any thoughts on how it got there? Any idea? And Muhammad replies, no, 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 not at all. Because this is the first time such an incident has befallen me. And as the detective left the interview room, he saw Muhammad checking his watch. Oh, nice. Like, how long is this going to take? Mm-hmm. Pleb. Hamid was next to be interviewed and he was asked the same questions. And he said he thinks Tuba stopped at McDonald's but wasn't sure. And that when they got back to the motel, he was there long enough for him to hear Zainab ask for the key to the Nissan before he decided to take the take the Lexus and head back to Montreal. 
when asked why he went to Montreal, his reasons varied from something personal to I forgot my laptop to even saying you don't feel like staying at one place with your parents, you know? Right. Officers told Hamid that there had been an eyewitness and the eyewitness was an eight-year-old boy and that he had seen two cars down at the lock, a big one and a small one, and that only the big one drove away. When confronted with the fact that there was an eyewitness, Hamid still maintained that he did not know what had happened down at the lock and he seemed shocked to find out that there had been an eyewitness. Mm. And the detective told Hamid that they were going to check out the Lexus just to see if there was any damage on the car. When Tuba was interviewed, she was able to tell police that she parked somewhere and waited for the two men to find a place to stay. Well handy, isn't it? <laughs> just oh, stop Where did somewhere. you park? Definitely somewhere. Uh-huh. She said that once they'd found the motel, they wanted to come and get her, but she just went herself. And it was around 2am that she heard Zainab ask for the keys to the Nissan. At no point in the interview did she break down over the fact that her three daughters were dead. She acted more like it was just the car that had gone into the water mm. and not her family. There's a, There was a lot to the transcript. I didn't put it all in. Mm. But the officer kept trying to say to her, you know, if if my family had, had died, if three of my daughters had died, and she kept kind of trying to plead with her about the fact that she was a mother and that three of her children were now dead, but she just didn't show any emotion at all. And they got about as much out of her as they had the other two men. They eventually brought Hamid back into the interview room after finding damage on the Lexus. And he told them, like he'd phoned up and reported before, that he had hit a pole and that he didn't want his dad to find out. And they left him in the interview room for 18 minutes during this time alone. The detective went out and they watched him. And during the 18 minutes, he flexed his biceps. He looked through his wallet and he even picked his nose. Oh. He he just had no concerns at all. So police on the scene at the locks found the broken glass from the Lexus. And although the three thought they'd picked it up, they Mm. hadn't picked up everything. And they managed to match it up to the fragments that had been handily left in the boot of the Lexus. (laughs) And but that yes. wasn't proof enough that the that the Lexus had, you know, pushed the car into the the locks yeah. or anything like that. Um, so on the 18th of July, which was 17 days after the girl's death, mm. the police decided to tell all three that they were combing through CCTV footage from that night. There was no cameras at the site, but they didn't know that. Yay! But the judge had authorised use of wiretap. So while they were at the station being told this, police were fitting bugs into the minivan. And when the trio climbed back into the van, the police were immediately eavesdropping. Mm-hmm. Mohammed said, they're lying. If there was a camera, they'd have accessed it in a minute. And Tuba agreed. She said, there was no camera over there. I looked around. There wasn't any. If, God forbid... God forbid there was one in that little room. All three of us would have been recorded. Hamid was driving. He said 
that night there was no electricity there. Everywhere was pitch darkness. Muhammad, you remember, don't you, Tuba? And she says, yes. So he's already confirmed that all three of them were there. At one point in this conversation, Hamid actually warned his parents that police, quote, can fasten something to record your voice. Oh, what a knob. But they kept talking anyway. Muhammad was heard saying, to hell with them and their boyfriends, filthy and rotten children. Over the next three days, police would record Muhammad cursing his dead daughters and basking in their demise. He was a good father, he said, a liberal who took on drudgery for them, and yet they betrayed him and undressed themselves in front of boys and acted like whores. If we remain alive one night or one year, we have no tension in our hearts, thinking that our daughter is in the arms of this or that boy, in the arms of this or that man. And then he said, may the devil shit on their graves. Oh, that's a bit strong, isn't it? Jesus. During another conversation, Tuba agreed that Zainab was already done, but wished the other two were not. But Muhammad said, no, Tuba, they messed up. There was no other way. They were treacherous. They betrayed both themselves and us. This was enough for the police. So the next afternoon, July 21st, officers arrived at at the Shafia residence with a search warrant and child welfare workers. So for their own safety, Childs A, B and C were removed from the home and placed in protective care. Right. When presented, now I know why they're A, B and C. Yes. Gotcha. Yep. When presented with a warrant for four counts of murder, Muhammad said, my conscience, my God, my religion, my creed aren't shameful. Even if they hoist me up onto the gallows, nothing is more dear to me than my honour. Let's leave our destiny to God. And may God never make me, you or your mother, honourless. There is, he said, no value of life without honour. On January 29th, 2012, after 15 hours of deliberation, a jury found 58-year-old Mohammed, 41-year-old Tuba and 21-year-old Hamid guilty of four counts of first-degree murder. In Canada, first-degree murder verdicts carry an automatic sentence of life without the possibility of parole for 25 years. The judge's final words to the family before their incarceration were, the apparent reasons behind these cold-blooded, shameful murders was that the four completely innocent victims offended your twisted notion of honour, a notion of honour that is founded on on the domination and control of women, a sick notion of honour that was absolutely no place in any civilised society. Mm. So honour killings is the murder of an individual, either an outsider or a member of a family, by someone seeking to protect what they see is the dignity and honour of themselves or their family. Most often, it involves the murder of a woman or a girl by Mm. male family members due to the perpetrator's belief that the victim has brought dishonour or shame upon the family name, reputation or prestige. Examples of how women can bring dishonour to the family include having premarital, extramarital or postmarital sex, refusing to enter into an arranged marriage, seeking a divorce or separation, 
engaging in interfaith relations or relations with persons from a different caste, being the victim of a sexual crime, dressing in clothing, jewellery or accessories that are associated with sexual deviance, engaging in a relationship in spite of moral marriage impediments or bans and homosexuality. It is estimated that there are some 5,000 cases of honour killings a year with many, many going unreported and they happen all over the world but are more prevalent in Islamic countries such as Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen, Jordan and Egypt. In Pakistan alone, between 1998 and 2003, it was reported that there were 4,101 honour killings. Crimes in the name of honour are considered justified and so receive a lesser punishment if conceptualised to be honour crimes. So they, the Shafia family are still in prison currently. Well, well good. I mean, that just seems horrendous, absolutely horrendous. Why put all of that into protecting your honour? I'm perplexed well, by it. Because that's exactly it. I know their children is are a representation of them or that's how they feel. But, I mean, I'm a great believer in just be responsible for you and your actions. Yeah. I don't, I don't say to Claire, oh, when we're going out with my friends, you need to act this way and you need to dress this like, like this and don't say anything about this or don't say – because Claire's her own person. Yeah. And I'm my own person. It's just – the the notion of honor is yeah. something that you you interpret how you want to interpret hmm. but what baffled me the most about this is that drowning your four children hmm. is not seen as dishonorable no but being the victim of a sexual crime can be seen as being dishonorable just yeah I, that's that's what baffles pretty, me the most pretty much everything about that story perplexes me If you have enjoyed listening to our episodes, make sure you rate us and leave us a review on whatever platform you are listening. We absolutely love hearing from you guys. So you can also help support our show by donating to our Buy Me A Coffee link. We will make sure that you get a massive shout out and a big thank you in our next week's episode. You can also follow us on social media at Perplex Podcasts. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and if you want to see more videos and blooper reels, subscribe to our TikTok and YouTube channels. You can also email us your stories at perplexedpodcasts at gmail.com. And you can find all the relevant links in the episode descriptions. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. I really should, if anyone can give me some help, and I've just done it then, I'll start a sentence and I think, all right, my mouth's got this, it can handle it. (laughs) Your brain fucks off. And then my brain fucks off somewhere else and starts thinking about what I want to say next. But I don't realise that my voice has actually gone, oh, I don't know. (laughs) And then my brain goes, oh, you're not speaking. Engage. And I then (laughs) say something else. Yeah. Good shout, Kate. I know, I say some fucking ridiculous things. (laughs) It's a bit like that. And now I'm going to leave you guys hanging.
<laughs> I was like, wait a minute, what are you thinking? I know. Yeah, it's a good yeah. job that we're not live. I know, right? That you I can know. edit you know, it out. If we do anything live, you can pretty much guarantee that I'm going to say something that's inappropriate or offensive or something. <clears throat> yeah. So we'll just have to have a disclaimer at the beginning going, look, I'm a fucking idiot. 